the U.S. is uh, probably the country with the highest concentration of universities per capita in the world. You know, we have more than 6,000 institutions of higher learning, uh, varying from uh, community college level all the way to uh, doctoral. Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, a production of Edu Alliance, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, and thank you for tuning in. I am Dr. Sentel Nathan in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and with me is my co-host, Dean Hoke in Bloomington, Indiana. Dean, how are you today, and will you introduce our guests? Well, I'm doing very well, thank you. And we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, this is Dr. Tarek Soap, who is the president of Lawrence Technological University in Southfield, Michigan. They have an enrollment of approximately 3,000 students. Dr. Soap is a licensed engineer, professional engineer. He assumed the position recently, meaning January of 2022, and joined the university in 2020. Is that correct, Doc? Uh, yes, September 2020, yes, as promised. Very good. Yeah. Prior to that, he had been a, a longtime faculty member and senior administrator at the University of Bridgeport, if I remember right. Yes. And in the fields of engineering, your bachelor's degree is with honors at the at Alexandria University and a master's and a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. So you also put some time in over at the University of Utah as well, I believe, in terms of faculty. So yes, that was that was, that was my first academic job at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Yes. Well, very good. Well, welcome to the show, and we thank you very much for being here. Central? Uh, Tarek, uh, we are seeing an increasing number of foreign-born scholars like yourself leading uh, universities in the United States. Uh, what are some unique advantages that you think uh, these scholars bring to their universities in the U.S., and what are some unique challenges they may face at times? Thank you for the question. Of course, and, and and I think one of the reasons for the surge of foreign-born scholars who are and have been for a little while starting to assume leadership positions in the U.S., meaning the last maybe 10 to 20 years, at the levels of chairs and deans and vice presidents, provosts, and, and as of recent, even presidents, uh, is obviously the uh, uh, the influx of of great scholars and international students who have been uh, coming to the United States uh, for the last you know thirty or forty years to study uh, for graduate degrees and and pursue doctorates and get into higher education as a as a career. So I guess the inevitable outcome of the surge of international students that the U.S. has been very blessed to receive, you know, for the last few decades is that many of these wonderful scholars and scientists and academicians would progress in their academic career to the levels of, again, chairs, deans, profs, and, and presidents and such. And again, you know, from the point of view of unique advantages uh, uh, or positives resulting from this uh, recent trend is, of course, the, the global experience and the international, uh, I guess, knowledge uh, that these scholars uh, not only bring to their new jobs, 
but also the experience that they themselves have had as you know students in U.S. universities and also being students you know before that in many cases in international universities. And I think the inclinations of many of these wonderful emerging uh, leaders who were born outside the U.S is naturally going to be trying to form things like partnerships and exchange programs and joint research endeavors between the universities that they are currently assuming leadership positions in. And of course, many other wonderful and very accomplished universities all around the world, not only necessarily from the place that they already uh, that they have come from, but also uh, other you know countries uh, globally and so on. Uh, which, of course, naturally would lead to, to to great joint efforts in doing joint research, which would lead to greater recruitment efforts and bringing even more qualified, uh, excited uh, international students to come to the U.S. to assume, you know, uh, positions like research assistants and teaching assistants and such. Uh, and it really helps enrich the uh, globalization aspect of many U.S. universities. The U.S. really is a global hub for, you know, for, for internationalization. And the more many of these foreign scholars assume leadership positions, the more the chance and the opportunities that they would be interested in starting in joint research and recruitment activities. And also it's an advantage because it provides for the students in these universities unique opportunities uh, to collaborate with, you know, foreign, you know, university, to collaborate with international students, to travel abroad and 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 be able to peruse the opportunities for studying and doing research in other countries, uh, so it really it enriches the globalization ecosystems of U.S. institutions in measurable and many immeasurable ways. Uh, of course, you know the the, the challenges you know in terms of the opportunities for assuming leadership uh, is again it's typically the glass ceiling syndrome. I mean, for, for many, you know, foreign-based scholars, for many foreign-based professors uh, who started, you know, uh, their academic journey in the U.S. by studying in the U.S. and, and getting excited about doing research and, 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 you know, getting their doctorate degrees and then starting their first, for example, academic professorship in one of the uh, U.S. universities. Uh, the numbers are not dramatic in terms of, you know, uh, uh, international foreign-born leaders in many U.S. universities still. You know, it is a pattern that's starting to happen, but the numbers are not very, very significant. So in many cases, you see these young professors or middle-career professors who do not see enough role models or enough people at that level of leadership in the universities that they work in, of course, now living in the U.S., uh, US uh, is hopefully starting to disappear, right? As more examples and role models and 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 individuals uh, assume these type of positions, I think you'll see that hesitancy uh, go away. Um, so th that would be my take on it. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Dean? Dr. Tarek, let's talk a little bit about your institution itself. We've, we've spoken to several of the university leaders on this series, and they've expressed their advantages and also their challenges that they have. I believe in our series so far, you may be the first private U.S. university that we have spoken to. And coming from that world at one time, I realized there are unique advantages and, and disadvantages. I'd like to hear your point of view in terms of your university and how they perceive that? Of course. 
Uh, Lawrence Technological University is really a very unique, eminent private institution of higher learning for, for multiple reasons. And, and let me talk about that for a little while. I mean, the U.S. is uh, probably the country with the highest concentration of universities per capita in the world. You know, we have more than 6,000 institutions of higher learning, uh, varying from uh, community college level all the way to uh, doctoral, of course. Uh, that's a very, very large number of higher education institutions. When you take a look at that landscape, um, and of course, given my own inclination and training as a technologist at heart, and I'm a roboticist, as, as you both know, by, by training, of course, uh, you know, near the end of my journey at my previous institution, I was always aspiring to, uh, to, to assume a leadership position at the president or provost level in a technologically focused university. And... Uh, and by that mean, I don't mean a glorified engineering school, but I, I mean a comprehensive university that offers all the majors, but ensures the students are technologically savvy at the end of their journey in any of these majors. So a, a place where, you know, the health sciences and the clinical sciences would, you know, teach uh, robotic surgery and uh, would teach, uh, you know, bioinformatics and would teach uh, telemedicine and, and such, you know, a place where schools of architectures and architecture and design would teach 3D printing of housing, uh, of houses, augmented realities and, 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 and such, uh, places where schools of business would be teaching forensic accounting and cybersecurity and data analytics and artificial intelligence applications of business and, and so on. And, and when I started doing my, my scan of these 6,000 institutions, very interestingly, it turns out there's only 56 technologically focused universities, uh, institutions of higher learning in all of the U.S., less than 1%. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it was stunning. And it was stunning to me doing that research after having been in higher education for 30 years. I always thought that that number would be around, you know, three, 400, for example, right? So it was kind of very revealing, you know, that at the in the 21st century, there would be that not that much focus, really, you know, institutions within the technological arena. And more interestingly, when I scanned these 56 universities, it turned out that only half of them were comprehensive, uh, meaning they offer all the majors at all the levels, you know, from the way from associates to, to PhD and doctoral, and offers all the disciplines. Uh, some of the others are wonderful eminent institutions, but, you know, the studies end, end at, for example, the bachelor's level, or they don't have the diversity of majors. So that was also very revealing, uh, less than half percent, you know, with 28 institutions that are by mission, vision, and name, you know, technologically uh, focused. And uh, in my own case, I have always worked in uh, private higher education, you know, with my previous employer at the University of Bridgeport. Uh, and, and of, of course, and I worked in industry, in, both in industry and Phillips Research Labs, and of course, for industry as a consultant for many years. Uh, and I only worked in a public university, which was a great experience at the University of Utah for a little less than three, four years. But I always thought that uh, from the point of view of, again, my technological training and being uh, an engineer at heart, I, I always thought that private universities are much more nimble and agile than, than public institutions. Things get done faster and it's easy to make decisions, come up with new eminent interdisciplinary programming quickly. Uh, easy to form relationships both with international institutions and companies and, and other entities and so on. And out of these 28 institutions of higher learning, it turns out there were only 13, one, three uh, institutions that were private. Uh, 
uh, we're talking here now about less than a quarter percent of U.S. institutions of higher learning. And some of these names you would know, right? I mean, MIT, right? Uh, Caltech, uh, Lawrence Tech, uh, RPI, uh, WPI, uh, Stevens Institute of Technology, as an example, and, and six others, right? Or, or seven others. So it was kind of interesting, and, and again, to see that that mix. And, and of course, uh, obviously, and, and, and Lawrence Tech is even unique within these 13 because the intimacy between industry and co-ops and internships of, with the university, given where we are in the metro Detroit area, you know, of course, and uh, the exploding, you know, innovative new auto industry of the future and so on, and the suppliers industry and, and others, you know, we're very, very intimately involved with the industry. Not only do most, if not all of our students actually go through at least one or co-op or internship before they graduate, uh, but also uh, exhibiting, you know, 100% employment. Actually, my problem in Lawrence Tech is not finding jobs for my students, given the technological and STEM-based education they receive in the different majors. My my problem is to keep them until they graduate, because they get the job offer, you know, after the first or second internship, and they want to finish part-time, which I don't encourage, you know. <laughs> but again, you know, the, the, the uniqueness of Lawrence Tech, again, and, you know, talking about the advantages of, of the university, uh, not only being one of this very, very elite core of 13 comprehensive technological private universities in the country, but the outcomes are are, are, are simply fantastic. I mean, all the students do co-ops and internships more or less guaranteed. Uh, uh, our industry relationships and, and the projects and the joint research we do with industry uh, is very, very sizable. And and uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate student research uh, is prevalent in every major. Uh, our funding, which is which is significant external research funding, that is, uh, is not only from the classical sources of U.S. funding for research, like the National Science Foundation and the Department of Education, Department of Energy, etc., but actually a very significant portion of our funding comes from companies and industries supporting our research projects, supporting only not only research projects but undergraduate student projects, agents who are very very industry-oriented and work in industry, work hand-in-hand with our professors and students from day one, you know. Uh, and, and we also are, as you mentioned, we're a little more than 3,000 students, so we are medium-sized, which, and we insist on having also smaller class sizes, you know, so we don't have any class in any major, from architecture to design to arts and sciences and and engineering and business, more than 25 students. And these are very unique differentiators. So uh, it's a it's a great and, and truly forward-looking, progressive, uh, technological-based and, and STEM-oriented right. uh, university that also emphasizes, and that's part of what we've been doing for the last few years, emphasizing interdisciplinarity in, in, in our education, uh, which is really required to create the professional of the future who would be uh, he or she comfortable, you know, with the changing pace of technology and the fact that most of the emerging fields in the, in, in, in the professions are very interdisciplinary based and require a breadth of knowledge in many different areas. Right. I think you're right about that. Central? Just changing track to you uh, as an individual, Dr. Tarek, the higher you go in higher education, the lonelier it gets. <laughs> as a first-time president who took the position um, less than a year ago, what do you think are some keys to your success as a leader in higher education? Thank you so much for the question. And uh, uh, 
uh, well, I, again, I'm, I'm not uh, an expert on, on, on leadership per se. So all I can uh, contribute is my own experience and my own feelings. Uh, like, like, of course, many other aspiring leaders in higher education, you know, I, I did go to the expected and requisite training, right? You know, whether it's the presidential training, you know, uh, workshops and, and, and seminars and, and programs or, or others like that. The key is not being afraid to get out of your comfort zone, not being afraid to go and actually spend a week or two and get really involved and understand how admissions processes work internationally and domestically and transfer and so uh, spending a week or two you know with the administration and finance people to understand budgets and how the budgets work and the human resources piece of the budget and the costing you know of programs and across the university and how to manage the debt and the bonds and 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 all of these issues you know that relate to that uh, getting involved in, in fundraising and, and donations and, and 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 what that means and how the funnel you know works and 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 engaging potential prospects and and and, and providing an an inspirational you know message to to people to help out you know uh, future generations of uh, of, of potential students, etc., uh, uh, and even the mundane, you know, building and grants, <laughs> and, and, and which is very important, you know, and facilities management, etc., and how things get designed and worked and built and maintained, and what that that means from a fiscal point of view, and it's a whole set of things, and that has to be done intentionally. It it cannot be. It's not something that people absorb while they're walking around. No, no, they have to invest the time and the energy and and truly get educated by the relevant professionals in this area in preparation for such a leadership role in higher education. And in answer to your question, I, I think that was most helpful to me, uh, mm -hmm. trying to understand different okay. parts of the organization for a long time. I mean, you know, I, I did try as a young professor to understand many of these aspects as I grew. Uh, uh, as, as I evolved in my administrative roles, you know, to, to share and, and Dean, et cetera, I tried to learn more about the non-academic piece in addition to the academic piece. And I think that's the best preparation. Uh, attending workshops, of course, and, and getting mentored this and finding role models to ask questions of, you know, is crucial, incredibly crucial. Uh, but nothing is more important than immersing yourself within these operations for significant durations while you're working at the university. Uh, one can hear and get trained all the time, but seeing it and doing it and participating and trying to understand and help out in operations out of the mainstream of the academic operations that a typical professor and an academician would be involved in would be the key, would be the key to assuming the leadership position and gaining the trust of the individuals in the other parts of the university that you have the executive and leadership skills. And, and of course, the second piece is, is people. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, we can study all we want, we can understand how operations work, but unless, you know, the, the leader is a is a humane leader who, who knows her or his employees, and I mean everybody, you know, faculty and staff and administration, truly cares for them and, and may, wants to make all the time absolutely sure that they are well taken care of and appropriately trained and also promoted, right? And and really make that an intentional piece of the job, how to professionally develop and help out the professionals working with you, everybody, faculty, staff, administration, unless that piece is intentionally taken care of and, and managed, it doesn't matter what the manuals say about leadership or management. And people are the ones who do the job. Faculty are the ones who develop the products, right? And, and the actual content. Uh, 
uh, you know, the administration staff are the ones who admit the students and take care of their needs, etc. So someone like me or a dean or a provost can say all we want, you know, about what we want to do or what we think is the right thing to do. But we don't execute them. <laughs> we provide direction, right? The, ex- the people who execute them are our staff and faculty and other administrators. So they have to be truly taken care of and in a very humane fashion and, and be helped to professionally develop, to be leaders in their own right, and to have the confidence and 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 you know and the appropriate working environment to perform uh, reasonably well. And and yes, it is lonely at the top, <laughs> as you mentioned. It is true, you know, at any level, to be very honest, not only the presidential level, but again, a working environment is is an environment that, in 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 many cases, some decisions have to be to be made that are might not be very popular, right? You know, and uh, might not be. I mean, not every decision that will be made is going to be something that everybody claps to and are very happy with. That that doesn't happen in any organization in the world. And of course, having you know, uh, you know, uh, very intimate you know relationships or you know friendships and and so on and so forth within the set of employees who report to any leader could become an issue. I mean, that's the the, the reality in, in in life, right? Uh, so you know, I, I I think you know maintaining professionalism and and again caring for people significantly and making sure that they do well. Uh, is the key, but forming incredible, you know, very, very tight, you know, quote unquote, personal friendships, you know, when you are at that particular level uh, is a, is, is a little bit of a tough proposition. Uh, I I mean, being again, a a caring and humane leader does not mean that you are everybody's best friend because you will never be that as a leader of any organization. Uh, For that, I have my wife. So, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's not a big It's a it's a it's a different proposition, you know. So I hope I answered your question. So yeah, yeah, that's a good hint. Actually, the last one you said. uh, (laughs) I think it never gets lonely if you have your wife. I think you can share everything, Uh, Dean. I'm not so sure about everything, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to bring her on the show next. Uh, I I, I had a feeling to say that, Dean. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about we talk about the loneliness, but at the same time. From a career point of view, you've been at this well over 20 years, even longer in terms of the academic career, and you've had a chance to observe and move up. But at the same time, I know my personal experience, and I think with most people, there were others within the university that became mentors, guides. Tell me about a couple of yours. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. There are there are definitely more than a couple. I, I have been blessed all my career with with amazing mentors and, and and individuals who truly helped me along the way and 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 you know gonna say something a little bit out of context but uh, <laughs> here goes you know <laughs> they always talk about two things right when it comes to progression in any career right whether it's an academic or industrial career careers in general and and people say well you know uh, intellectual capacity you know which some people call you know let's say, analytical capacity, organizational thinking, uh, liberally called sometimes as intelligence, right, uh, is very important, right? And and some would call it IQ or emotional intelligence or, again, organizational capability, analytic ability. Uh, intellectual prowess in general is important, obviously, right? And, and some other people say, well, you know, it's how hard you work, 
right? It doesn't matter, meaning, or, or the first piece, what I mentioned as intellectual prowess matters, but what really matters is incredible hard work, right? And with these two things, you know, incredible hard work, persistent, you know, conscientious hard work, and doing and analyzing things appropriately, again, these two are the measure for success. And, and in my opinion, if these were the only two, as an example, Dean, uh, uh, I would actually put hard work you know, number one, right? I mean, hard work and persistence. But there is a third one, which I personally feel is more important than these two. And that's finding people to help you along the way. No one can do it alone. No matter how smart a person is, no matter how incredibly hard the person is, if the person, whoever she or he is, do not find people who would help her or him promote them and help them out and believe in them, and help them assume leadership positions and so on, none of that matters. So for me, and, and I truly believe in this, I, I believe in that, I, it, it takes a community. It takes truly a community of people who believe in you, who help you, who are your supervisors in many cases, who would help you and promote you and give you raises and encourage you on. I've been blessed all my life and, uh, and I've had so many of these and without these individuals, uh, nothing would have happened, you know, regardless of the hard work and everything else of that. I think that's quite true. I think that's true for, for many of the leaders. Central? Yeah, uh, Dr. Tarek, as a university, uh, U.S. university leader, you have traveled widely around the world, um, including our region. And this podcast uh, goes about 50% of the audience. Uh, they come from outside the U.S., so over the past decade, as you have traveled around the world, what significant changes, reforms, transformations that you observe in different regions of the world in higher education? I, I did have the, the honor and I was blessed to, to have had the opportunity to, to probably visit more than 90 countries in, in my career as, as an academician and a scholar, uh, spanning all, everywhere, all the continents. Uh, uh, of course, you know, the largest percentage of these, of course, obviously were for work purposes, right? Either, you know, delivering talks, you know, collaborating with colleagues and researchers in other institutions, uh, 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 executing agreements with, uh, again, with either universities or, or companies and, and, and such. And and again, you know, there, there is a shift in higher education, a significant shift globally, not only in the US. I, I think in many ways, uh, institutions in all regions of the world, to be very honest, not only necessarily, you know, South America or the Middle East or Europe or, or Asia, uh, are starting to, how should I delicately say this, eloquently articulated, I, I think they are waking up to the industry needs and what, you know, companies really want from the graduates that they are producing. And, and I think that shift is being demonstrated in, in, in a renewed or emerging focus on skill sets as opposed to degree names or degrees. Uh, so you see an emergence of uh, professional development certifications, uh, you know, uh, uh, things like micro-credentials uh, in addition to degree programs in many of the countries of the world. Uh, you see a very significant shift uh, in the curricula in terms of trying to design curricula that are becoming more and more interdisciplinary, right? Uh, you see a shift in in, in, in in making sure that skills students have the right skills. And I, by the way, I do not only mean 
technical, interdisciplinary yeah. technological skills. I mean work skills, right? And and they are of course these three plus others. You know, uh, uh, skills like presentation skills, uh, writing skills, uh, working in a team skills, leadership skills, entrepreneurial skills, project management skills, social slash ethical skills when it comes to technology, which is an emerging paradigm of things like artificial intelligence and autonomy and so on. Uh, service skills and the importance of service community, serving communities, global skills, right, uh, 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 in the curriculum. So I am seeing a welcome shift, to be very honest, mm. for many universities in, in many regions of the world to get away from the rigid bean counting curricula design with a very specific degree name as being the only outcome of the education globally in many universities, including Asian and, and, and African and Middle Eastern and European and so on, to more of understanding of the need for this global set of skills for graduates of any major, not only you know one particular major and the other. And I think this is very, very welcome. I, I also, of course, see, you know, that, and of course that has happened over the 30 years anyway, that the, the transparency of education, being able to be in uh, in Africa or the Middle East and uh, or Europe or the US and have you know, at your fingertips, you know, access to all of this wide variety of curricula being offered all over the world, right, is opening the eyes of academicians, right? Uh, but the, the bottom line is truly industry, educating for the needs of humanity, as opposed to education for educate for education purposes, right? Uh, education is not really about providing a, a credential, because in many cases, maybe 20 years for, or 50 or 100 years from now, the name of a credential is going to be irrelevant. It's the skill set that enables person to progress, right? Uh, I mean, we're, we're, I mean, even here within the Detroit areas, you know, several of the uh, auto manufacturers are not even requiring degrees anymore, but requiring skill sets in very specific areas, regardless of the degree name or the degree discipline. So primarily, or one of many, but probably the most prevalent ones that come to my mind right now, educating for workforce development, educating for industry needs, educating for the emerging fields of the future, uh, as opposed to the rigid bean counting type curricula design and dispensation or disbursement. So Great. Zentel, we need to wrap this up and finish, and please go ahead. We'd like to thank our special guest, Dr. Taraj Sob, President of Lawrence Technological University. Uh, this concludes this episode of Higher Education Without Borders. If you would like to comment on today's show and suggest a future guest, please go to www.higherwithoutborders.com, comment section. On behalf of uh, Dean Hoke, HU Alliance, and Dr. Tarek and myself, thank you and make sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Thank you. This has been a production of Edu Alliance, an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi and Bloomington, Indiana. Nathan and Hoke, along with their team of experienced professionals, have assisted universities worldwide. To learn more about Edu Alliance, go to our website, www.edualliancegroup.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and our services. Thank you.